We're going to be looking at Colossians 1 this morning, and I'll have you turn there in a moment, but first, um, I just wanted to say this is my final sermon before I, not ever, but, (laughs) all right, well, you never know. (laughs) The plan is that this is my final sermon before going on sabbatical starting uh, March 1st, as as most of you know. Um, I will be here next Sunday, but not preaching. Nate, our pastoral resident, will be preaching, continuing the Colossians series. And I just wanted to say that the Wenzel family will appreciate your prayers over the next three months. I think um, all seven of us feel the need for rest and refreshment uh, to varying degrees. And I've never taken a sabbatical before, and there's still some details that I need to uh, work out. But uh, please pray for us. Ask for Ask the Lord to... Uh, rejuvenate us in the way that only he can. And so you can turn in your Bibles now to Colossians 1. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 23 this morning as we continue slowly making our way through this letter. If you're a Christian here today, Paul tells the story of your life in this short paragraph. Um, Now, it's probably not the way you or I might tell our story. Uh, There's nothing here about where we were born, um, how we were educated, professional accomplishments, um, wife or spouse, um, anything like that. Uh, This is a different kind of biography. This is your life story in relation to God. And as, as we'll see, it starts off as a tragedy. But it turns out if you're in Christ, your story ends up being a comedy. And, and I don't mean uh, something funny. I mean in the, in the older sense of the, of the term, uh, a story with a happy ending. A, a dramatic change and turn of events. And so Paul gives your spiritual biography here in four parts. Uh, what you were, what Christ has done for you, what you will be, and then fourth and finally, what you must do now. And so let me read the passage for us, and then we'll ask for the Lord's help, and we'll look at how Paul tells our story here in this passage. So Colossians 1, beginning in verse 21. That's page 983 in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along there. This is God's Word. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, we come to your word this morning as needy people. We we need your help. We need your grace. We need your strength. We need you to work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit so that these words are not just mere words, but life for us. And so would you minister to us today through your word, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, so your story in four parts, and it begins with what you were in verse 21, what you were. Paul begins this spiritual biography in the past, and it's not a pretty picture. The Bible's description of who we were apart from Christ doesn't flatter. And, and you might wonder, why, why would we want to think about the past here this morning? Um, why would I want to think about my life before Christ? Um, I, I think most of us would rather just forget that chapter, right? It, it's behind, it's done with, let's move on. Well, Paul knows that we can't really appreciate the, just how good the good news is if we don't grasp just how bad the bad news is, was. Um, Paul's not trying to just make us wallow in in how awful we were. He wants us to see the the glory of what Christ has done. But first, we have to to grasp what he did, where we came from. And so he gives uh, three descriptions here of our condition apart from Christ, the the dire condition apart from Christ. The first, he says that we were alienated. Alienated. We talked last week about the idea of reconciliation, and here's its opposite: um, alienation, estrangement, and and we all know what that looks like in human relationships. Um, sadly, it's often seen in families, right? You have uh, a parent and maybe an adult child who who no longer speak; they they want nothing to do with each other. Or you have grown siblings who, for whatever reason, they just refuse to be in each other's presence. Uh, here, Paul is talking about our alienation from God. And he's saying, this is who we were by nature. This is true of every one of us. Because of our sin, because of our, our relationship to Adam, we come into this world estranged from our Creator. Um, God is good. God is kind. God is loving. But He's also holy and righteous, and he can't just overlook our sin, um, at least not without violating his justice. And so this good and holy God, he can't have anything to do with sinners. He can't be on good terms with sinful, rebellious humans. And we say this a lot, but I'm going to repeat it. Uh, you were created for communion with the triune God. Uh, that That relationship for which you and and I and and all people were created that's what gives shape and meaning and purpose to life uh, we've been designed for that and and alienation just to, to help you grasp what this means alienation from God means being cut off from the God who is life um, and, and as a result you know life doesn't really make any sense uh, something's missing, something fundamental. And, and there's an article in the most recent issue of The Atlantic called The Satisfaction Trap. And, and there in that article, the author talks about the fleeting nature of satisfaction. You know, no matter what we achieve, no matter what we attain, uh, we're always left wanting more. And he says it's like we're on a treadmill. You know, we're, we're running... We're, we're pursuing something, and, and the problem is, once we get it, 
we don't stay satisfied for very long, and so we just have to keep running, and, and otherwise we'll fall off the back of the treadmill. And so we, we spend our lives sweating it out, really, uh, to no purpose. And maybe you sense that before you became a Christian. Uh, maybe you are not a Christian here today, and yet you have this, this nagging sense that, that something is missing. You know, maybe you, you tried to find it in a relationship, but, but as good as that relationship was, it just it, it, it left you empty. Or um, you've worked hard, you know, you're, you're successful, you're admired by your peers, but, but it's not enough. It's not enough. And that is a clue, if you've ever felt like that, if you feel like that today, that is a clue that you were made to find satisfaction in something more. Augustine, the 4th century Christian pastor, he once wrote that, uh, he once wrote in his, in his confessions, he says to God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. That's what we were designed for, but Paul says by nature we're, we're cut off from that. We're, we're alienated from God. He goes on and says that we were hostile in mind. That, that alienation has produced in us a, a deep-seated hostility toward God. And, and that term translated mind here that Paul uses, it, it's about more than intellect. This is really the, the, the whole orientation of our being was opposed to God. No, no neutrality. Fundamentally opposed to God. Now, someone might say, that's not me. You know, I, I don't hate God. He's just not a big part of my life. You know, religion's not, it's not my thing. It, you know, you, you probably have family members like this or friends, coworkers. Indifference is very common. Uh, just kind of an, an apathetic uh, approach to um, religion. But ultimately... That indifference is just a cover for hostility. You see, we want to be autonomous. We, we want to be our own masters, and so we try to push God out of the picture. And then finally, this uh, third description that Paul gives us is uh, we, were, we were doing evil deeds. And so alienated, hostile in mind, and then doing evil deeds, which is really the, the visible outward expression of that, that estrangement and hostility that was true of us. The, the outward behavior is really the overflow of the heart. Now, some of you maybe grew up in a Christian home and there was really no wild past to speak of. You, you can't really remember a time, a time where you, you didn't know God and, and love God and trust Christ. And, and maybe you're wondering if this description, this picture that Paul paints here of, of sinful humanity really describes who you were. And, and the answer is yes. By nature, this is who you were apart from Christ. And, and thank God that the, the good influences of your family restrained the, the worst expressions of your sinfulness. But, but by nature, each of us is born in this condition, separated from the God who created us. And so, so Paul begins with that first chapter of your story, the, the unpleasant part. Uh, you were alienated. 
from God. But, but that's not the end. And he, he goes on. There's a part two. Uh, what Christ has done for you. So, so what you were alienated. And now verse 22, what Christ has done for you. You look at verse 22, there's a, a contrast. And unfortunately, the ESV kind of softens it a little bit. He has now reconciled. But, but Paul wrote, you once were alienated, but now. There, he wants us to see the, the sharp contrast. But now, He has reconciled you. A, a fundamental change has occurred in your life because of Christ. If you are a Christian man or woman or child here today, there has been a fundamental change. That, that story that began with alienation it has given way to reconciliation. Everything is different now. We were enemies as we heard in the reading from Romans 5, but now we've, been, we've become friends. Reconciliation has that relational focus. Um, I, I don't know if you realize that it's more than forgiveness. Reconciliation is more than forgiveness. Forgiveness removes our guilt, and that is a tremendous thing. That, that's big, but that's just the beginning. You see, reconciliation goes further. It's about restoring the relationship. And the good news that Paul holds out to us here is that God has welcomed us back. God has received us back into communion with Himself, that, that relationship for which you were created. In Christ, you've been brought back into that relationship. We're not kept at a distance any longer. We've been brought near. There's a, a beautiful picture of this in the Gospel of Luke, you know Jesus' parable about the prodigal son. And you have this, this wayward son. And, and when he finally comes to his senses and, and begins to return home, he's on the road home, and the father sees him, we're told. Sees him far off. And what does the father do? The father runs. And the father embraces him. And the father kisses him. The, the alienation is over. Enmity has been removed. Friendship has been restored. And so, and we asked Paul, you know, how did this happen? How did this great change occur? And he tells us, through Christ's death on the cross. He says, God in Christ has now reconciled you in His body of flesh by His death. It's similar to what we saw last week, that Christ has made peace by the blood of His cross. He, his death, He died as our substitute, he, he took upon himself the, our sin and guilt, and our guilt was charged against him, and, and he received the penalty that our sin was due. God's wrath was poured out on him, and, and Christ satisfied God's just wrath against our sin. And so that, that barrier that existed between us and God, that, that barrier called sin, it's been dealt with. It's been removed uh, once and for all. It's, it's done. Alienation has given way to reconciliation. And realize, this morning, if, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is true of you. Uh, it's true of everyone who's trusting in Christ. It, it's objectively true. And what I mean by that is, rec reconciliation 
It's something that Christ accomplished for us. You see, it's about His doing, not ours. It rests on His completed work. And that means it doesn't depend on your feelings. You know, feelings um, come and go. Emotions go up and down. Um, sometimes your experience of this, this reconciled relationship with God is just, it's undeniable and you rejoice in it. Other times, you, it just doesn't seem like it. It doesn't feel like it. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, irrespective of how you feel, God has, has welcomed you. He has accepted you. He has received you because of what Christ has done, not because you feel it. And, and some Christians, I might even say many Christians, you know, we know that intellectually. We know what Paul says here. It's not a surprise to us. We've, we've heard the gospel. We know that our relationship with God is based on Christ's work. And yet we struggle to live in that reality. You know, maybe you have a, a difficult time experiencing God as a welcoming father who loves you in Christ, who, who receives you as a, an adopted son or an adopted daughter. You know, throughout the day, it's kind of like, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And there's a gap in our, in our inside of us between what's objectively true and, and our subjective experience of it. And, and if I'm describing you, let me assure you, you, you're not alone. You're not alone. Uh, many other good Christians often feel like that. Um, you're not some aberration. It's, it's quite common for Christians to struggle with this. And, and knowing that doesn't solve the problem. But, but maybe it can relieve some of the, the shame you might feel. You know, like, like you're the only one, and all, you know, every other Christian's just, you know, riding high in, in joy and experiencing God's love, and, and there's something wrong with you. Why can't you just get your act together? No, this is a common experience. And, and there's all kinds of reasons why. And, and often those reasons are very specific to the individual, but, but here are some common reasons. And I want to dwell on this for a moment because I, I think it might help us better understand some of the dynamics of the Christian life, um, some of the dynamics of what goes on inside of us. You know, the first reason might be some of us lived a long time in that alienated state. You know, it, it was kind of the air that we breathed, and, and, and it takes time for the heart and the mind to, to be reshaped by God's grace. You know, it's like being immersed in a foreign culture. You just get plopped down in this foreign country. There's a language you don't understand, customs that seem very bizarre to you, and, and it, you have to get used to it. You have to get used to this new reality of having peace with God. Uh, another reason, for some, they, their personalities just gravitate toward shame. Uh, their default mode is is to assume that things are not right between them and God. And I'm talking about Christian people here. They nearly always feel beaten down, you know, just so conscious and aware of, of their failures and shortcomings. Uh, maybe this is you. You know, do, do you worry that believing that God loves you means you're not taking your sin seriously enough? Does every fault or weakness that you detect in yourself just uh, send you into a tailspin 
of despair. You know, sometimes church cultures contribute to that, that sense that we really can't believe God loves us. You know, there are certain streams of Christianity that seem to think the, the highest virtue for a Christian is to always feel guilty. You know, if you're not feeling guilty, you're doing something wrong, and you're doing something wrong, so you should feel guilty about that. And it's as if, you know, a constant state of anxiety about one's soul is, is a fruit of the Spirit. And, and daring to believe that, that God really does love you means you're not a real Christian. You know, for others, it might come down to just getting a better understanding of the gospel. And, and I think in my own case, you know, I became a Christian around 18, 19 years old, somewhere around there. I was involved in a church, I was being discipled, but most of the teaching I received was about Christian living. You know, heavy on spiritual disciplines, great things, Bible reading, prayer, um, a lot of teaching about behavior and behavior change. Um, a couple years later, I was at Bible college studying the book of Romans and learning about justification by faith, that, that our standing before God is not based on what we do, but based upon Christ's own merits, not our own, His righteousness credited to our account. And and it felt like I had never heard this before. You know, I've been a Christian now for a few years. Where did this come from? Why have I never heard this? And and I don't know if that really was the case. I don't I don't know if I really had not heard about this or I just wasn't paying close enough attention. Um, I, I think it was probably a little bit of both. But but gaining a better understanding of the gospel, of Christ's work. Of, of what He has done for us was, was big. It had a, a steadying effect. It, it really opened the door to experiencing peace with God, not just as a, an intellectual truth, but a, a lived reality. And so I want to say to you, if, if you struggle like this, yeah, okay, Paul, you're, you're telling me that, that Christ has reconciled me to God, and I know that's true, but, but I really have a hard time living like that. I, I want you to know the, the way forward, it's not complicated, <laughs> but it does take time. You know, it's a, it's a matter of slowly, patiently, persistently internalizing gospel truth. Learning to live in this, this new land of, of reconciliation with God through Christ. And, and I don't have any quick fixes for you this morning. If, if you were holding your breath waiting for that, sorry to disappoint. But, but I do have two just very practical suggestions, steps you could even take. And, and you're going to think, yeah, preachers always say this, but the first one is pray. And I don't mean pray more. I mean, ask God to increase your ability to experience His love and grace. Paul prays exactly this way in Ephesians 3 for Christians. You might know that prayer in Ephesians 3. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but but look it up later and personalize that prayer. Make it your own. Paul Paul prays that that believers would experience the, the height and the length and the breadth and the depth of Christ's love. And make that your prayer. You, you, God wants you to delight in His love. He, he will answer such prayers. So the first, just simple suggestion, pray about it. And second, start reading a good gospel-centered book. You know, maybe something like 
Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland or Knowing God by J.I. Packer. You know, pair up with somebody. Maybe, maybe get together with three, three people and read the book together. Discuss it. Help each other apply it to your life. So your story begins with this, this dark chapter of, of alienation from God and, and then this dramatic change, part two, what Christ has done for you. And then third, Paul moves on to what you will be. What you will be. Why has God reconciled you to himself? Do you see the, the purpose statement there? Look at verse 22 again. God has reconciled you to himself in Christ in order, there's the purpose statement, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. So this is all forward-looking. This is future. This, what, what is in view really here is the final judgment. When we stand before God, when we appear before Him, and, and Paul tells us here that, that Christ will present us to the Father. And when He does we will be found irreproachable in His sight. Irreproachable in God's sight. And the three terms Paul uses here, um, holy, blameless, or, or without blemish, above reproach, meaning free from accusation, they, they all point to moral and spiritual perfection. And so, um, as wonderful as the, the part two of your story is, God has reconciled you. This is, is taking it even further. God not only has worked in Christ to restore the relationship, to repair the relationship and bring you back to Himself. His, his goal, His purpose, His intent is to make us a holy people in Christ. This is your future. And, and like so much else in the Christian life, there's an already and not yet dynamic to it. And one commentator just summarized it well. He says, God has done this in principle by dealing with sin on the cross and achieving reconciliation. In Christ, you have been made, you are accepted by God. When he goes on, he is doing this in practice by conforming us to Christ. So that's the, the present work of sanctification. And then he says, and God will make us completely holy in the future. So there's a, there's a lot of encouragement here as, as we go about our Christian lives day to day and, and we struggle with sin. We, we give in to temptation. We, we battle the flesh. And, and Paul is telling us here that that struggle will come to an end one day. There is a day coming when when your feelings of guilt and shame, whether they're legitimate or not, will be no more. That, that'll be a thing of the past. Sin will no longer hinder your fellowship with God. It, it'll no longer get in the way of your enjoyment of His love and His grace. There's a day coming when Christ will present you before the Father and you will stand before God in Christ with no shame with nothing to hide, with no reason to fear God's scrutiny, you will be holy and spotless and free from every charge. That, that is what Christ is doing in you now, and He will complete that work when He returns. And Paul roots this all in what Christ has done for you through the cross. His life given for you 
guarantees this future for you. Uh, Most biographies can't talk about the future because we don't know the future. This one's a little different. Paul says, if you're in Christ, this is your future. This is what you will be. And and so even now, in the the here and now, um, when you sin, and inevitably you will, inevitably I will, you know, confess it, repent of it, but also let it be a reminder to you that one day that'll be done with. One day you will be holy and blameless and above reproach. So part one, what you were. Part two, what Christ has done for you. Part three, what you will be. And the fourth and final part of this story, what you must now do. Verse 23, what you must now do. Now, I've said over the past few weeks as we've been working through this section in Colossians, there's a very practical purpose to everything Paul says here. The the high Christology that we looked at even now, this this before and and after contrast, um, there's something very practical behind all this, and it becomes crystal clear in verse 23. In light of who we were, in light of what Christ has done, uh, in light of who we are now in Christ, how should we live? And Paul's answer is, is this, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. And, and he could mean there the faith, the Christian faith as a system of belief. So he would be saying, don't drift from the truth. Don't drift from the truth. Or, or it could mean your faith. Continue in your faith. Persist in your faith. Keep trusting Christ. Fix your hope on Him. In either way, the message really boils down to uh, the same thing. And, it, and it's this, don't move away from Christ. I, I've said that a few times over the past few weeks. Uh, you start the Christian life with Him. You continue the Christian life with Christ. We, we don't move on from Christ to something else. Now, if you look again at verse 23, there's that if there at the beginning. If indeed you continue in the faith. And, and that if causes a lot of anxiety for, for many Christians. You know, it can sound like Paul saying, look, friends, here's the glorious future of, of everyone who's in Christ, but I, I look at you and, and I don't really expect to see you there. You know, is Paul saying that really when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, our future depends on us. Our future depends on how strong our faith is, how diligently we invest ourselves in the Christian life. No. No. See, this is a reminder here that faith is not a one-time act. You know, faith is not about saving faith, genuine faith, is not about a decision you made 30 years ago. It's, a matter, it's about whether you're trusting Christ right now, day by day. That's real faith. You know, you, you meet people whose lifestyle would, would make pagans blush. <laughs> and, and you try to talk to them about the gospel, you try to talk to them about Christ, and, and they just kind of wave their hands and wave you off and say, look, you know, when I was a teenager, I went forward at a church. I prayed a prayer. I'm good. Stop talking to me about this. I don't want to hear about it anymore. Uh, that's not genuine faith. That, that was just some emotional response to the gospel. Um, 
Saving, I heard one person put it this way, saving faith is present tense. Saving faith is, is present tense. I am trusting in Christ. And the, the question is not, did you make a decision sometime way in the past? It's, are you trusting Christ today? Genuine faith perseveres. It persists. It continues throughout one's life. And I'll, I'll just make a little aside in case you're wondering. God, by His grace, will preserve His own in the faith. That's abundantly clear in Scripture, but it doesn't negate your responsibility to keep trusting. And so Paul says, continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast. These are architectural terms, words used to describe a a structure built on a firm foundation. So you get this picture of a, a building that's established. It's not easily moved. And, and we ask, well, how? You know, how can I be like that? How can I continue in the faith? How can I be stable, steady, steadfast? And Paul says, by not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Don't shift away from the gospel. And, and maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, there goes Paul with that gospel business again. You know, with Paul, it's always gospel this, gospel that. Um, come on, I need something more practical. Come on, Paul, give me a formula. Tell me how long I need to pray each day. Uh, tell me how many chapters in the Bible I need to read to, to meet my quota. You know, give me a list of things to do so I can be the Proverbs 31 woman or, or so I can be the Christ-like husband. You know, give me a checklist. That's what I want. That's what I need. <laughs> and you, going back to that idea of a, a building with a solid foundation, you know, we want Paul to skip over this, this foundation stuff. Nobody cares about the foundation. Nobody sees it. It's boring. We want him to tell us, you know, about what, which paint colors to use and, and how to arrange the furniture inside this, this structure. And, and Paul, in essence, says, look, you live in California. Sometimes the earth shakes. <laughs> you need a solid foundation. Um, he will get to the paint colors. He will get to the the furniture later in Colossians when he talks about how the gospel transforms our lives. But but first we have to be grounded in the gospel. Grounded in in who Jesus is. In what He's done for us. That's where stability comes from. That's where maturity comes from. Knowing and believing and responding to all that Jesus is. and, And all that He's done for you. You know, a stable, mature, steady Christian life comes from being grounded in the gospel. It's the grace of God that will make you stable and steady. And so Paul says, friends, don't move. Don't be, don't shift away from that gospel. And so this, this is your story. If you are a Christian here today, this is you. You, you once were estranged from God, but now reconciled, welcomed, adopted, accepted, loved, bound for glory. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. He, he's that great turning point. The difference between chapter 1 and chapter 2 and everything that follows is, is Christ. He's the reason for that, that contrast. You once were, but now you are. And so... 
Paul invites us to, to cling to this Jesus, to keep trusting this Jesus, to plant the roots of our faith down deep in the soil of His Gospel so that we can be stable and steadfast in Christ. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, we do want to be people who are rooted in Christ, people who are grounded in the Gospel, people who who not only know intellectually of Your love in Christ, but also experience the reality of being Your sons and daughters. And so we pray that You would flood our hearts once again with Your love through Your Holy Spirit. Would You strengthen our faith, increase our understanding of the wonders of your grace that have come to us through Jesus Christ and, and help us, Lord, to live now as, as reconciled people, as people who have been brought back into communion with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.